0: Welcome to VChat number 41. My name is David Davis from ActualTech.io and VMWareVideos.com. And I'm joined by...
1: Hi, I'm Simon Seagrave from TechHead.co.
0: And our special guest today is Mr. James Green. James, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, hey there. Uh, Glad to be here. I'm uh, also blogging over at ActualTech.io and I blog on some non- Tech-related things over at my personal blog jdgreen.io, uh, and you can find me on Twitter at jdgreen.
0: Awesome, awesome! Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, James is also a multi-year V expert, um, a, a VMware, you know, a, a admin consultant. Uh, you know, for many years. Um, I know you have a strong consulting background. Is that right, James?
2: That is true. Uh, did quite a bit of architecture consulting. Um, And I was on the customer side for a while before that as well.
0: Awesome, awesome. So today's topic is VMware's flings from the VMware Labs website. Um, We wanted to, you know, we're excited to have James on because James has written a number of articles, um, or I should say one article is about to come out, and there's more on the way. Uh, Is that right, James?
2: Yeah, that's true. I I have written a few in the last couple of years. I, I don't know, but I did, I just wrote one. Uh, recently which is why they're kind of top of mind for me right now
0: absolutely yeah yeah on the topic of vmware splings and, and the cool free tools you know from vmware's labs um, before we jump into that topic you know the news that's on my mind uh, that came out recently is the V vblog uh, results from 2016 the voting so you know simon um what, what do you think what do you think of the, the blog results
1: yeah yeah really good i mean uh, full credit to eric again uh, a lot of work obviously involved with that um yeah interesting less less votes than last year i think that eric was saying there was 2200 last year 1600 this year so that's that's it's, it's it's a little bit of a drop but not not too many um yeah a lot of great uh um blog posts out there that have been submitted. Um, me, personally, I've disappeared off the face of the earth. Not, <laughs> I think I was down at about 175, 100, 176, so, uh, which is fully justified because I haven't been blogging much at all uh, over the past year, year and a half at all. So uh, that's a well-deserved place there. But it gives me something to aspire to. I've got to get back into that top 25 again. Um, So, yeah, yeah, I've got a number of blog posts lined up, so uh, I'll be kicking that off again soon. But, uh, yeah, the usual suspects at the top, so uh, Duncan, obviously uh, topping out at uh, number one again and uh, well-deserved. William Lamb... um chris wall some other big names in there as well as you'd kind of expect so uh yeah and and uh, a few few uh new bloggers up there you know a few up and comings coming up into that top 25 uh uh placements as well so uh no full credit to everyone that uh that was involved that was submitted and uh had a placing there well done
0: yeah i know it's a ton of work like you said uh you know congrats to eric uh seabird for getting it all done um and you know his results show is out there. If you want to view it, we'll we'll post a link to it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, congratulations to the winners. Uh, congratulations to you, Simon, for being in the top 200 still at least. <laughs> results. <laughs> um, and and also in the top uh, 100 is Mr. James Green. James, uh, what have you been doing on your blog? What have you been writing about?
2: Yeah, uh, that was must have been kind of an accident because I kind of like Simon. I haven't been doing nearly what I should. Um, but that that actually was really motivating for me. Uh, because it indicates to me that some of the stuff that I put out there in the past is still relevant and useful. And um, so s- seeing that happen motivated me to to kind of start getting stuff back on there. So I'm, I'm exactly in the same boat as Simon. I've got a number of ideas written down, and I've got some writing to do, and uh, I'm going to get back on there.
1: Yeah, yeah I, was... I mean, I'm... Sh- Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, for me, it was a real kick in the pants. Actually, I I forgot that it was happening. And I mean, work and life and everything has taken over. But uh, yeah, it was a kick in the pants and a bit of a wake up call that, hey, I I better start blogging again. And uh, I I really enjoy blogging. I love blogging, but uh, I just haven't allocated the time. I mean, like I say, due to work and and family commitments. But uh, yeah, I've just got to find that way of finding that time to uh, start blogging and, you know, creating content of value for the community again.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some of the other things that you guys have done, um, you know, uh, James, you know, wrote a book. Uh, Simon, you've been doing a lot of podcasts, the Data Center Insider Podcast, and, you know, stuff like that, I'm sure, you know, helps helps to get votes, you know, all around. Um, I, I noticed that uh, the blog that uh, Scott Lowe, uh, other Scott Lowe, I should say, uh, and I run, uh, virtualizationsoftware.com, was also listed in the top 10 of the news sites. I think there's only 10 on the news site list, uh, but it's in the top 10 there. Uh, if you want to, you know, check that out. The cool thing I found, or the most useful thing I found about the results, is there's just tons of new blogs that I've never heard of, and every one of them uh, Eric has hyperlinked. So you just click on them. You just go down the list and click on any blog you don't recognize. You can, you know, read their content. You know, check out the about me page and learn about, you know, all these new bloggers, you know, in the industry. So I think the list is a very, um, you know, useful resource. You know, in, in that sense. Um, so, I mean, I guess with that, let's go ahead and jump on to our next topic, our main topic for today's show, which is VMware's uh, flings. Um, I, I did a, sh- uh, a podcast and a VMworld, uh, you know, session back around uh, 2010, I guess it was um, with uh, Kenny Coleman, maybe it was 2011, with Kenny Coleman uh, and I, where we talk- talked about the top uh, free tools. And I know Kenny Coleman has a great list of, you know, top tools. And many of those tools uh, are from VMware's labs. And many of the tools we talked about back then, some of them have been deprecated. Uh, some of them are still there. Um, but James, being our, our expert, you know, on VMware Labs uh, for today, um, James, why don't you tell us about, you know, some of the tools you've written about and, and the ones you've found most useful.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I, um, like you, a couple of years ago gave a... Um, I think it was one of the V. vBrownBag tech talks about free tools, and I know at least one or two of these uh, that I'm gonna mention made the list there. And so uh, one of the things that is really helpful to me is that I can always count on these to be around. Um, if they are needing to be updated because of new versions of vSphere or whatever, I know they're typically are getting updated. Um, and so some of these I've been using for a long time. Um, But then some of them are new and exciting too. So you mentioned that I had just written an article about one that I shared with you. It's not published yet, but um, it's about a fling that VMware just released called DRS Doctor. And the idea is uh, traditionally, DRS has been a little bit opaque in the way that it uh, shares with you the way that it's making decisions. So DRS um, moves virtual machines around within your cluster to make sure your cluster is balanced. It hasn't always done a great job of telling you why it decided to do that. Uh, And so the purpose of DRS Doctor is to kind of analyze the log files that DRS is generating anyway, but are pretty cryptic um, and turn them into something that's easy for you to look at as the administrator and understand why DRS did what it did. So uh, the big use case for that is a lot of times when you're dealing with... um, some some weird DRS behavior you got to open a support ticket and dump out these uh, DRS logs and send them to support and have it analyzed and this will allow administrators to triage some of that kind of stuff on their own and um, it's also just useful for I think planning purposes and it's really interesting to me just to see uh, you know these are the metrics that that play into it and why DRS is doing what it's doing
1: yeah. So, by the sense, by the sense of it, there, James. Is it, it, so, if I've got this right, it uh, creates sort of like a uh, a dump of a log file, does it? So it, uh, so it consolidates all that information into a single place and then analyzes it from there.
2: Yeah. From a from a mechanical perspective, what it's doing is uh, it's parsing some of the DRS logs itself, and then um, when you're done running this, uh, it's it's a collection of. Python scripts, really. You run the first one and it starts collecting data. Once you're all done collecting the data for the time period that you want to look at, you run another one and it crunches the data even further. And in the end, what it spits out is just a, a summary report of what happened during that time. We did uh, this many V motions for this reason. The cluster is balanced in this way. Uh, and you just get this real nice printout uh, that shows you auditing of that whole time period you were watching. So. Yeah, really easy to use. It's Just a, a couple of scripts that you run is really all it is from a mechanic standpoint.
0: So it's not a GUI tool. It's a command line tool. Is that right? It is,
2: it is a command line tool. Uh, and when I was playing around with it to uh, do this write-up, I actually had quite a bit of trouble, but it didn't have anything to do with the fling. It had to do with the fact that um, I'm an OSX user, and uh, when you install a particular version of OS 10. it comes bundled with Python, and sometimes that's a different version than the one you want to use. I had a bunch of conflicts with that. So interestingly, as is uh, almost never the case in my life, I moved over to Windows and it worked right. So that shocked me a little bit. <laughs> so it works,
0: works best yeah. on Windows or Linux uh, to get it installed. You need right. some specific versions of Python, um, and then you download the fling and, and run these command line tools.
2: Yep. So um, definitely check out that uh, how to article when it comes out. Um, but with a little bit of advice that's in that article, it really should take five minutes to get up and running. It's it's uh, I don't know if trivial is taking it too far, but it's it's very simple to do.
1: No, uh, that's that's brilliant. Because I, I remember back in the day when I was an administrator trying to get the uh, the DRS uh, log files or the the um, DRM dump. Log files, DRF, that right? Yeah, yeah yep. trying to decode those, I mean, yeah, basically I just gave up. Uh, but I remember a couple of instances there where I had to try and ascertain why it was doing what it was doing with, with regard to placement. Um, yeah, I could have done with this tool back then, that's for sure.
2: All right. Um, well, let's talk about a different one. So this is not always necessary anymore, but there's a fling out there called the ESXi Embedded Host Client. Um, this is something we've been waiting for for a long time, and is actually now a part of vSphere 6. So, if you're up to date on vSphere, it's not an issue anymore. But uh, you know, in a lot of environments, that's not the case for various reasons. It's uh, some sort of homegrown application that's keeping them from upgrading, or a compliance thing, or budget, or whatever it is. There's a lot of people not running vSphere 6.0 yet. And uh, the purpose of this fling is to provide a web-based UI for managing an ESX host. So our options in the past were uh, the the user interface on the console, the DCUI, connecting to it with the C# sharp client from a Windows machine, or I guess SSH. Um, those were pretty much your options when you didn't have vCenter for managing ESXi. Well, this adds a fourth option to that list, which is you get a web browser interface where you can do everything you would do from the DCUI, you know, IP it, um, enable, disable SSH, uh, rename it, those kinds of things. Um, and also everything you could do from the C-sharp client, you can deploy VMs from there, you can uh, pull down logs, so For a lot of people like myself, who are primarily uh, not Windows users, it was always pretty frustrating in the past to try and manage ESX hosts uh, without a Windows desktop before vCenter uh, was up and running. So uh, this pretty much eliminates that problem. Now from any browser, I can manage ESXi.
1: Fantastic. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's definitely a useful one as well. uh, That's the thing I like about the flings. I mean, you know, most of the flings, the majority of them are... You know, it's not like they're just creating these utilities for the sake of creating utilities. You know, a lot of them, they're they're obviously listening to the community as to what's required. Uh, You know, any any gaps or or holes in the current utilities and tools offered as standard with vSphere, uh, they're definitely filling a lot of those gaps with these really uh, uh, nifty little, uh, you know, flings that they're generating.
2: Yeah, and on one hand, it's a stopgap, like you're saying, it's we're going to meet this need right away. Uh, and then on the other hand, it's, it's kind of like an early beta because a lot of these things you're going to see eventually rolled into uh, you know, a mainline product. So if, like in the example of this host client, it is now a part of vSphere 6. So um, you know, depending on the need, sometimes it's, just, uh, it's there right away because you need it right away. Sometimes it's something that you're gonna see mature into uh, a production release.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, one thing that really stood out for me that I, I will benefit a lot of people out there is the uh, vSphere HTML5 web client uh, that I saw that they released relatively recently. I think it was um, a few days back, or at least the update to it. Uh, that's one that I've really appreciated and and I've, I've been running in the lab here um, with, with great success. Um, so I guess that's that shift away as well to you know pure HTML5.
2: Yeah, and I think that's one of those good examples of something that you will see in a production release, um, but it's just, it's not quite there yet and this is a way that users can roll it out, test it, give feedback from a real environment, uh, and really help the engineering team make the production release really good. And some people like us, you know, we want it right now.
1: We don't Yeah, wait. yeah. we like to tinker. <laughs> yeah.
0: So James, what's the difference, the, the ESXi embedded host client um, is now in vSphere 6, and so that's what you use to manage an ESXi host before you have vCenter installed, Um, whereas the HTML5 client, um, how is that different?
2: Yeah, so that one that Simon just mentioned is, it's a direct replacement for the vSphere web client, and you deploy an appliance, if I understand correctly. Have have you actually done it, Simon?
1: Yeah, yeah, I played with ID very, very briefly. Um, So you
2: you deploy an appliance, right, and it basically takes the place of the web client service?
1: Yeah, yeah, similar to the last one from memory, yes.
2: And so this is um, on the vCenter side of things uh, rather than the ESXi embedded host client is just strictly for managing a single vSphere host and it runs on that host. The HTML5 web client is for, uh, uh, for vCenter.
0: So you need vCenter to use the HTML5
2: client, correct? I believe so. Is that your understanding too, Simon?
1: Uh, I believe so. Well, you normally, it, but from memory, uh, yeah, you get it as, a, as an OVA and just release it, you know, just deploy it as an OVA. Um, but yeah, from memory, I do. It's got a cut down, as you can imagine, with an early release like this. It's got a cut down version of the uh, the, the functions and functionality of, of what you can use. Um, uh, actually, let's have a look. Let's see if I can bring something up here. Um, yeah, yeah,
0: I read that there's still some functionality that's missing, um, but I'm sure they'll address that.
1: Yeah, like VM VM migrations, for example, is they're only doing that to a host at the moment. Creating a VM on a host is currently limited, um, but it's it's good. I mean, they 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 preface this with uh, you know with the thing that it's it's a fling, it's not fully complete yet, you know. But try it out, kick the tires on it, and you know, give us feedback, which 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 I think is really good. Is and it the uh, speed stats? Speedwise, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's been really good actually. Yeah.
2: I mean, that's what we've been waiting for, right? It's like two major versions of promises that it's going to be fast and I think I think this is where it will finally actually be fast the I mean it in fairness the production release of vSphere right now the web client is pretty fast I mean it's it's definitely tolerable but when it goes to html5 that's when we're going to see it be actually fast and a pleasure to use
1: yeah what it is, is it's been a little bit hard for me to gauge the reason being i've just I've, I've only spun it up in my lab environments here so far which has got really low utilization on everything so it's not sure. like my environment here is under any load or stress and i've got a limited amount of vms and hosts so you know i think running anything against my lab at the moment is going to seem fast but uh <laughs> <laughs> but definitely didn't have any problems with regard to speed
0: and the screenshots i saw it looks really cool i mean it, it reminds me of uh the evo manager, I think they call it, which is also an HTML5 um, yeah. you know, client interface. Yeah. So what Wait. else, James? What other cool oh. flings have you seen?
2: So um, I mentioned that some of these are new and exciting. Some of these I've been using for a long time. One of the ones I've got on my list here is the, um, the VMware OS optimization tool. So I've been using this fling for years, and its purpose is to help you optimize what's going Typically, you could use it for other reasons, but typically what's going to be a gold image for a desktop pool or maybe to, to customize your server template. And so what it is is a, a graphical interface for enabling and disabling all kinds of Windows services and uh, different features and stuff that you can turn on and off so that you can get everything that is not needed turned off and decrease the footprint of that gold image. So if, just as an example, if you haven't done this before, if you're deploying a pool of a thousand desktops, if you can decrease the CPU and memory footprint of your master desktop image by just a little bit, when you multiply that times a thousand, it's gonna make a big difference across your compute resources. So this tool is really helpful in paring down the last few little pieces that you might not have gotten to to make it that much more efficient. And uh, the last time I used it, it works on um, XP. God, you're, God forbid you're still deploying XP. Um, <laughs> Windows 7, 8, um, I haven't seen if it's been updated for 10 or not, uh, and then you could use it on server 2008, probably 2012 at this point. So any Windows OS you're trying to customize, and I, can't remember. I thought maybe I even read something about uh, they were maybe looking at adding Linux in there. I'm not sure. But in my experience, a bunch of different Windows operating systems, and uh, it makes the process painless and fast. And for me, it helps me remember things that I would have forgotten.
1: Yeah, I noticed uh, when I was looking at the fling list that the, the release updates. I mean, they do it in, um, in in the sort order of dates released. I noticed in the last month or so, uh, three of the eight or so, or how many they've got there, about, or three of the 10 are actually um, virtual desktop related. So you've got the, with the Horizon, just look, having a look now, the Horizon toolbox, uh, Horizon view configuration tool, and the VMware iOS optimization tool that you mentioned there, James. So it's interesting. They're actually, you know, they're obviously channeling quite a bit of resource into that area uh, with regard to Fling creation. Yeah, that
0: sounds like a really useful tool. Like you said, especially for VDI. Um, you know, just looking around the site here, you know, one of the other tools that I, I was talking about talking about back in 2011 is is VMware Guest Console VGC, uh, which did all kinds of different things for virtual machines. But I don't know that it's been updated um, since 2010 when it was released at version 1.1.0. 1. I haven't tried it, you know, in many years, but it it was a very useful tool back then, and I don't know if you've looked at that one at all recently, James?
2: Not recently, but I remember it. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest challenges as an administrator is uh, in a VMware environment, shadowing your users and helping them figure out what's going on, and uh, that was a big help in solving that problem.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what about like PowerCLI stuff? I mean, I know Alan Renouf, um, you know, was kind of championing, championing, championing um, Onyx and Onyx for the web client because it um, basically anything you do in the GUI, it would spit out the PowerCLI. Uh, so you didn't have to sit down and try to figure out how to create, you know, PowerCLI scripts yourself. Um, I see that one's still out there, and there's also another PowerCLI uh, tool that's new.
2: Yeah, it's called Power Actions.
0: So what does Power Actions do?
2: Yeah, so these are really cool. Let me talk just briefly a little bit more about Onyx. So uh, what it does is uh, makes your boss think that you're really good at scripting. <laughs> uh, so so basically what you do is you fire it up and connect it, and then it's it's watching what happens in, in the vCenter that you're connected to, and you go perform some actions in the regular user interface that you're used to using and it records what you did and then it spits out Power CLI to perform the same actions you just performed. And so what you can do is if you know there's a task you'd like to automate, you know that Power CLI is probably the right tool to do it with, but you don't have any PowerShell skills, you don't uh, think that you're capable of writing that without spending a ton of time, Onyx can allow you to create that script in five, 10 minutes. So that was around a while back, and you used it with the c Sharp client. There's now an Onyx version for the web client as well. So you can go and record whatever actions you're doing in there. And so then the, the tool that you just mentioned called Power Actions is basically the, the opposite side of the equation. If you've got scripts that you know you'd like to run, Power CLI scripts that you'd like to run against your environment, Power Actions is a GUI tool to run those scripts, from the web client. So you can install it and then you can load in these scripts and be able to use them um, from your graphical interface. For example, you could right click on an inventory object and run one of these scripts against it. So the two combined, uh, you can really start to do some cool stuff because you can perform the action once, get the script created by Onyx, then load it in as a power action and be able to right click and run the whole thing uh, Sort of like you know, if you think of it as a macro, that's that's basically what you're getting to, right? Um, and it could be a lot more powerful than that, but that's the way I see a lot of people using it. Is they know I've got this uh, four-step process that I do over and over. Let's just pull that into a right-click go sort of function.
1: Nice. Yeah, I, I, I can see a lot of benefit there as well for someone wanting to learn PA, PA, Power CLI as well. Is if you can record it and see the scripting, you know, the, the the code that it generates, and then from there, I mean, that's a great way of actually learning Power CLI. Then at that point, jumping in and tweaking the code and changing it, and um, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I haven't checked that out myself actually. I, I, I'll have to do that.
2: Yeah, it's, it would definitely be an easy way to get your feet wet with Power CLI because. Um, like you were saying, if you could get in there and maybe just modify some of the variables without having to write the whole script, you could at least get a feeling for how it works and start to feel more comfortable with it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Cool stuff. Cool stuff. What else, James?
2: Well, I have I have two more on my list here. Um, another one that's been around for quite a while and I've used quite a bit is the VMware I.O. Analyzer. So this is uh, an appliance that you deploy, and it helps, one, monitor and two can actually help with load testing as well your storage performance so uh, one case where you could use this is if you were having some performance concerns and you wanted to be able to monitor and see uh, more detail about your i.o than what you can get straight out of uh, some existing console you could deploy the tool to do that the other case is if you're doing a new deployment say you got in uh, a new storage array and you want to see if it's actually going to hold up to the load that you're expecting it to. You can use this tool to help you. Uh, you can have it deploy some worker appliances or actually I think you have to deploy them, but then you can connect them back up and and have one kind of control all the rest and you can generate a bunch of load to make sure that your configuration is right. When you actually get to the load you're expecting in production, it's going to perform uh, and it gives you some really nice charts and stuff when it's done running that you can go and take back to the people who are going to ask the hard questions and say, you know, here we go, we tested it, it did what it's supposed to do. Just like any uh, workload tests, obviously you have to be a little bit careful about how you configure it and make sure that you're simulating real workloads, but if I'm not mistaken, uh, it can even help do that. Um, I seem to remember, it's been a while since I ran it, but I seem to remember that you can actually capture some Um, production workload and then replay that as well, which would be really neat in helping you kind of qualify a new deployment because you could say this is the exact workload that's been running in production, here's how it runs on the new system.
1: That's brilliant. So you could get a good insight into the before and after without even doing the migration from the the old environment across to the new one. Yeah.
2: I hope I'm not overpromising. I seem to remember it does that, but I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> I mean, um, even if it
0: doesn't, I mean, it's still really cool to be able to, you know, show your boss, hey, you know, we installed Flash Cache or whatever it is, and we increased performance by 20%.
2: Right. Um.
0: Or you know, we hey, we tested these two different SAN arrays, and this one performed 30% better than the other one. You know, um, having those kind of metrics to really help you make a decision is so much better than just saying the next morning, yeah, it kind of feels faster. I think it's faster, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a real-world example, I had a customer who uh, was looking to buy a new hybrid array. They weren't sure which one was the right one for them, so we looked at a bunch of things that had to do with not necessarily performance, manageability, supportability, and some of that kind of stuff. But when it came down to just performance, we actually got one of each in, and I used this tool to run the same thing against both and see which one handled it better. And uh, they were able to see there on paper that one did 10% better than the other one did, uh, handling the same workload. So, And that helped them, uh, wasn't the only thing, but that helped them make their decision on which array they were gonna buy. Very cool. Nice. So, well, I've got one, one more, and this is uh, also in the category of you may not need this anymore, but some people do. They released a fling called VMware Tools for Nested ESXi. So in my case, uh, for two or three years, my lab setup was that I had one um, big white box that I stuffed as much RAM and disk and CPU as I could buy consumer stuff into this one machine. And then I ran a copy of VMware Workstation and virtualized ESX hosts inside of there. And I was forever frustrated by the fact that I could not get those things to behave, especially when I tried to automate it. So um, let's say I had to reboot the machine, the the host machine. Well, I don't want to just haul off and reboot the machine without shutting down ESXi. Uh, but there's three or four nested ESXi hosts, and then a bunch of VMs running on those nested ESXi hosts. And I would I would have liked to be able to script the shutdown of all of that stuff so I could shut it down gracefully before I shut down or reboot the host machine. Well, for regular guest VMs, that's no problem. But there was never a way until this fling to do that for ESXi. So essentially what this does is you install it. It's a vib that you install on the host, and then you have some of the normal guest VM controls for ESXi that you would have for a Windows operating system or Linux or what have you. And so that allowed me to script the shutdown of my entire nested lab environment so I could do something, you know, patches or whatever on the host machine. Um, I say that's not needed anymore because they have, just like the uh, embedded host client, they've baked that into vSphere at this point. At least that's my understanding. And I, I don't believe you need this anymore. So now you should be able to run nested vSphere 6 uh, and use guest OS controls and be just fine.
1: Yeah, it's just silly silly little things as well, like time synchronization with the SXI host as well. Um, You know, little things like that. It depends how you've got your machine set up, whether it's going syncing back to a domain controller or not. But I guess it depends on your environment, but little things like that, just it it all helps, doesn't it? Especially for any sort of time sensitive or, or, you know, services that need to be in synchronization.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, very cool list, James. Um, we'll have all of these tools in the show notes. Of course, they're all found at labsvmwarecom Um This has been a great episode of VChat. Uh, well, thanks so much for being on with us today, James.
1: Thanks yeah. for having me, guys. It was yeah. Fun. Well, j- just one thing before we go, actually, I just want to ask James something. So, James, you mentioned there you used to. We, we, we love talking about home labs on this, on, on VChat, right? And you, you mentioned there at the time you were running a single sort of consumer white box fully loaded. Uh, you made, made it sound like perhaps you're not doing that now, and I'm just wondering, what, what are your thoughts, what, what's your lab looking like these days, what, you know, what's your preference?
2: Yeah, um, <laughs> I, at the time, the most I could get stuffed in there was 32 gigs of RAM uh, and like a top of the line i7, right? Uh, and that really just wasn't enough for some of the stuff that I was wanting to test, especially as I was getting into testing, like say NSX for all the appliances that you need to virtualize network functions. I just, I needed more capacity. So I actually wound up going out and buying some retired um, R610s from a a data center somewhere that was pulling them out. And so at this point I run three R610s in a vSAN cluster. So I've got a couple of consumer SSDs in each and then a couple of consumer one terabyte hard drives in each. and I'm running vSphere 6, 6.0 update 2, and vSAN. And what else about it? Uh, it's an SG300 switch, so one gig networking, which is a bummer for vSAN. I wish I could have more. That's on my wish list is uh, a 10 gig switch for my vSAN traffic. <laughs>
1: right. that, that would be nice. And uh, So your lab setup, do you, you run that at home there? And do, do you leave it on
2: 24-7? I do. and. Um, the surprising thing for me, I, I bought that stuff back in August, right after VMworld, because I got excited about some stuff, and on the <laughs> way home, I was like, I need more. So I bought it on the way home. Um, the first thing that was surprising to me was it, the power draw is really not as bad as I expected. I had heard horror stories of people trying to run their lab on, you know, enterprise-grade gear and their power bill, like, doubling I I actually barely saw any difference and granted they're not running at 90% utilization and I'm only running one of two power supplies, uh, because I, I don't want to burn the electricity on redundancy in my lab, but, uh, yeah, I, it actually hasn't been bad at all. What was bad is they do definitely still put off some heat. So, uh, in, uh, we were talking before we started and I was saying that I had just moved. In my old house, I didn't have a great place to put them and they actually ran right next to my desk here in my office. Wow. Uh, the second thing I was surprised by is that they were quiet enough to do that. Uh, but at this point, I've moved them to the basement and so they're they're just sitting off in a corner of the basement. I do leave them on all the time and uh, it's actually working great. The power bill is not too bad. I have tons of capacity. And to, to put that... In, uh, in perspective, I'm not sure what it costs to get, to say, stuff uh, 64 gigs of RAM in a white box now, but I only paid, I think, about $400 for each of those. Not with disks in them, uh, I had to buy the disks, but I bought uh, three 96 gig machines for about 400 bucks each. Like, you couldn't do that building a new White box machine, and get the same kind of capacity. So that's that's really what led me to do it. Because now I have you know pushing 300 gigs of RAM in my lab that I've, I'd have to run a lot of stuff to use all that. <laughs> and from a pure cost perspective, it honestly wasn't that much more than you know building a brand new white box off a newegg.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm always amazed. You go into eBay, the cost of enterprise grade storage now. You know, if you're prepared to have a model that's perhaps two three years old. Compared to the old days, you can pick stuff up for, like you say, an absolute steal uh, with with very good specifications, particularly around things like memory and CPU as well.
2: Yeah, and, um, you know, another thing is they're dual socket machines. If, if you were going to try and build that in a white box, now you're going to be talking substantially more money. And that's just par for the course on these machines, so it's not any more expensive. So now I've got two quad-core CPUs instead of one and I I didn't really end up paying much more. And from a virtualization perspective, that's really helpful to me.
1: Yeah. Were they uh, Xeon CPUs in there as well?
2: Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. 2650s or something. Wow. Very nice.
2: So, yeah, Yeah. it's it's the the one downside, I would say, about doing that. In a lot of ways, it's really nice. The one downside is it's kind of a lot to deal with when you need to say, I've been doing a lot of work on the new house that we moved into, for example, and I need to kill the power to the house so I can work on some electrical fixtures. Well, now I've got like a half a rack full of enterprise gear and I need to bring it all down in a way that's not gonna break it all, right? And so it becomes like a literal maintenance window where I gotta go get all this stuff shut down and everything where when I was running my white box setup, it was super easy to bring it up and down. Um, And the same goes for when something goes wrong. Um, If one of my nested esx hosts tipped over and i couldn't you know get it to do what i want i just shoot it and build a new one real fast and that's no problem when one of these esx hosts is having a problem now i actually have to worry about am i having a hardware failure here uh you know is it firmware issues it just in one way it's really really nice in another way it kind of puts some overhead in my lab that you wouldn't have to have and kind of makes working in the lab a little bit more hectic than (laughs) I think a lot of labs.
1: Well, it gives you that real world feel a little bit more, doesn't it? So when you go out to a client site, you've got to do this, you're a little bit bit more finely tuned as it were, I guess.
2: Yeah, that that was my primary driver for doing it actually is um, besides the capacity thing, it's like, I want to be able to test things just like I'm going to test it in production. Um, Perfect example of that is probably two, two years ago, uh, Infineo had a new release and I wanted to test it out. But when I tried to run it in my nested lab, just because of the, the way it was configured and the way Infinio does, the accelerator does what it does, I, it would not work. Um, situations like that motivated me to build a home lab that looks and feels like production so that I can test things in a relevant way.
0: Yeah, yeah, great, great points, James. Um, I mean, I, I've been running uh, my lab in VMware Fusion on an iMac that has 32 gigs, and I'm I'm pressed for RAM all the time uh, right. to do you know so many things like um, I mean even vSAN and vRealize Operations. I mean, when you deploy VR Ops, it I think the default is like 12, 12 gigs of 16 RAM.
2: Sixteen, even I think.
0: Is it sixteen? Maybe, I, yeah. I, I mean, say. that's half the RAM on my on my iMac. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, having more RAM and getting it cheaply, I think, is, is a very, very smart move.
1: Yeah, and I mean, yeah. gone, gone are the days with the Windows-based operating systems where you used to sort of, in your lab, spin up a, a Windows VM with maybe two gigs, you know, a Windows right. server and get away with it because you're not running big workloads. But these days, you know, really each Windows instance is chewing through, what, eight gigs, something like that. And like you say, there's not many instances before you chew through uh, 32 gigs. So.
2: Yeah, and there's there's a lot of tools coming out now that are in a more, uh, distributed architecture where you're going to have to deploy three or four different appliances to get the whole thing up and running. And yeah, I mean, you can be out before you're even started. That's right.
0: That's right. Very cool. Cool stuff. Well, we'll, we always love talking about home labs. Thanks for telling us about your home lab. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about home labs on, on future episodes. Um, it's been an awesome VChat. again. Thanks for being on James.
2: It was really fun, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Well, stay tuned for more VChats. Uh, everyone, check out the show notes for links to all these tools. And thanks, Simon, for joining me today.
1: No, thanks, guys. It's been great as always.
0: All right. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.